Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, we've been in this series where we're uh, looking at Christmas from a little bit different perspective. Instead of just going back 2,000 years ago, we've been going back 2,700 years ago. And the, the book of Isaiah, really an amazing book. Some commentators call it the fifth gospel. Because in this book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah talks so much about Jesus that in it, you, you see the stories. The amazing part, though, he wrote what he did 700 years before. And in it, we've been asking this question, what child is this? How can we see Jesus in a new way? And we looked at Isaiah chapter 7 and, and really answered where God is in this. And we said, God is with us, as Isaiah presented. We looked at Isaiah chapter 9. We see that God is for us, and we see the who of who Jesus is, and we looked at that last week, his different titles. Uh, final question we want to look in this series as we think about Christian, Christmas is not just the where and the who, but why? Why did Jesus come? And, and I think there are few passages in the Bible that lay out why Jesus came more explicitly and more clearly than Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have a Bible, turn there. Grab this Bible. Grab the Bible right in front of you. I'm not going to put them on the screen. It's such a great passage. I thought this is one of those ones that just be so good for us to walk through it together. So turn page 729 to, to Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, and in this passage, it talks about this mission of why Jesus came. You know, I was reading this last week. Uh, a mission from World War II. I'd, I'd never heard about it. It really was fascinating to me. Of a Polish captain, Witold Pilecki, who, who in Poland, as he was watching what the Nazis were doing, and specifically as he saw that they were taking people to Auschwitz, the concentration camp, and the Jews that were carted off, he came up with one of the most daring missions in all of history. He went to his superior officers. They had him draw up fake papers identifying him as a Jew. Now, he was a Christian, served in the Polish army. But, but he went into the streets of um, Warsaw there. And, and in the streets, he was rounded up with the rest of the Jews and sent to Auschwitz as a prisoner. Prisoner 4859. Uh, his officers couldn't believe that he would be willing to do something so daring, but he said, unless someone's on the inside, we're never going to know what's really going on. In 1941, he was put into the camp. He worked, he was beaten, he was treated like all the other prisoners. The whole time, though, he was organizing groups, organizing resistance groups, getting information. He would send information out by couriers. After he'd been there a year in 1942, he had gathered up enough parts and pieces to form a little radio transmitter, and he began to transmit signals out, telling the allies what was going on with him. He kept documenting everything that he could, stayed there another year. In 1943, he was moved to the bakery, and he was able to overpower a guard, and he finally escaped on his own. Went back home to his wife and two kids, who he had left this whole time while he was on this mission unbelievable mission. And, and he documented what he estimated two million Jews had been killed at Auschwitz. When the word went to London, 
at first they couldn't believe it. There's no way that many people were killed there. And yet history proved him correct. A mission where you're willing to go and, and literally be among them. Listen to what one Jewish writer wrote. As he talked about this great hero. He said, Pilecki, once he set his mind to do the good, he never wavered, he never stopped. He crossed the great human divide that separates knowing the right thing from doing the right thing. I mean, he crossed the divide, honestly, few people would ever do. To go place yourself in that kind of danger, to go place yourself among those who are persecuted in order to help them. And I tell you, as great as his mission is, and great as his life was, it pales in comparison to the mission of Jesus. And, and when we come to Christmas, instead of just the baby in the manger, instead of just celebrating the story, I think we have to embrace again, this is one who was sent on a mission. This is one who came to do what no one else could do. That's why I love this passage of Isaiah 53. It's one of the most powerful passages that talk about this mission. In fact, it's one of the most quoted passages in all the Bible. The, Isaiah chapter 53, it's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1st Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1st Peter, and 1st John. 15 books in the New Testament all go back to this chapter. You think it's pretty important? Let's read it together. Let's look at, at this mission that Christ came. And as we look at his mission, I, I want us to look at the ways that he came in his mission. Read with me verses 1 and 2. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should de desire him. As you look at this, I've thought about the different ways that Jesus came and as it's described here. In these first couple of verses, they point out to us, and I put it this way, he came small. He came small. I think we have it there. We got it? There we go. He came small, embracing the insignificant and the ordinary. Now, you, you think about it. If you want to really compare two chapters, it's pretty interesting. Read Isaiah 6 sometimes and then read Isaiah 53 right after it. Isaiah 6, you see Jesus, you see God on the throne. And when you're in the throne room and the angels are around it, you see how big and powerful he is. And then you put juxtaposition with that or put it with the Luke 2 story that suddenly the God who's on the throne is now a baby in a manger. Guys, it doesn't get, more, it doesn't get smaller than that. Isaiah describes it, he's like a shoot that came out of this dry ground. You got to remember, he came after 400 years of silence. He came after there was no real king on the throne anymore. The people of Israel are now subject to Rome. The king they have is this puppet king, Herod, who, who's not a real Jew. He doesn't care about the people. And, and out of that dry ground where there's no king, suddenly one from the line of David, like this little shoot, like this little growth that comes out of this dry ground, here comes Jesus. And yet when he comes, notice how it describes him. It says he, he wasn't really good looking. 
He, he wasn't this dashing guy. In fact, that term that he uses that he wasn't really something to look at, it's the exact opposite of how David and Saul were described in the Old Testament. Both David and Saul, these kings, were described that they were good-looking. Saul had stature. David was described this exact term. Man, he was a good-looking guy when you looked at him. There was something about those guys. They step forward and you go, yeah, that's a king. That's the man. He commands the room. He commands the lineup. And I know when you look at stories and movies about Jesus, we, we can't help ourselves. Even though he's described this way, any movie that has Jesus in it, he's a pretty good-looking guy, isn't he? He's kind of got the flowing hair and that, you know, and, and then the smile, and it's kind of dazzling, and you go, yeah, that is the man. By definition, by design, by his choice, Jesus said, no, I'm not going to go like that. I, I'm not going to go and, and I'm good looking. I have all the advantages that, that come with that. I'm willing to go small. I'm willing to go ordinary. I'm willing to be so insignificant. When they even find out my hometown, everybody looks at me and goes, you're from Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But Jesus did. And I think he's showing us by design, he came to reach all people, the ordinary people, the small people. And he was willing to put himself as the lowest among us. So he described it to his disciples. He, he said, I didn't come to lord over. I, I didn't come to set up a kingdom that's top down with power. I came to turn the whole thing upside down. And guys, it started even with this birth, even with this life. He came small. Now, that would be startling enough, but keep reading. Look at the, the next verse as he describes it. He was despised and rejected by man, men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't give him the credit he deserved. Look at the second thing. He came sorrowful. He came sorrowful, experiencing the deepest pain and grief. And, and this was startling, especially for the first audience, because remember, Isaiah is talking about the Messiah that's going to come. And they have expectations of Messiah is supposed to come big. Messiah is supposed to come powerful. Messiah is supposed to come and overthrow all these other rulers, especially Rome at that time. Messiah is supposed to be the one that has everything. And, and then Isaiah is writing about this suffering servant, this sorrowful person. And again, it's pretty mind-boggling to me when I think of Jesus on his throne, surrounded by angels, all of the glory, all that he experienced. There's no pain there. There's no sorrow there. He's not experiencing any of that. And by his own choice, he came here. And notice what it says. He's a man of, of sorrows. It wasn't a one-time thing. And, and I love that phrase, he was acquainted with grief. He knew grief. It's part of his life. Doesn't mean that he walked around all the time and he was sad all the time. Read through the stories. You don't find that. But it was a part of who he was. You know, being a pastor throughout the years, you, you meet different people. And that phrase has always stuck with me. Sometimes I'll meet people 
And I almost know it before I know their story. They're acquainted with grief. There's a depth about them. Sometimes it's a sadness you kind of see in the eyes or, or, or something. People that have experienced loss, lost a spouse, lost a child. There's an acquaintance with grief that runs deep in it. Struggle with sickness. A cancer that is not healing. A mental illness that someone in the family carries. Caring for a dying parent and watching their life and their mind slip away and the pain that comes from that. Sometimes it's the grief of a broken heart, of a spouse that they absolutely loved and were committed to and watched them leave. And the grief of the household in that. Sometimes it's just the grief of where they are in life. And, and, and there's something heartening for me to know that as Christians, and by the way, we're, we're the only one that serve a God like this, who by his choice, he's acquainted with grief. By his choice, he knows what that feels like. And I'm not just talking about his, his death. Look at his life. Jesus was acquainted with grief, guys. He's a refugee for the first few years of his life. Literally, his family's on the run. When they finally settle back in this little town of Nazareth, he, he grows up in a hometown where everybody whispers about his mother and his heritage all the time. Oh, yeah, there's Jesus. Oh, fathered by Joseph. <laughs> right. He, he grew up, and at some point between the age of 12 and 30, his stepfather Joseph died. He lost his father. I mean, you, you read his adult ministry, he's not there. At the end of his life, he's got to find somebody to take care of his mother. And so he knows what it's like to lose the stepfather that raised him. He, he saw followers come and go. He saw even the disciples, the ones that are close to him, argue all the time about position. His cousin, that probably was the only one who understood him the most, was beheaded because he stood up for what was right. The time we see him cry the most, it's outside the tomb of a friend. And when he's going through the hardest night of his life, his closest follower wouldn't even admit three times that he knew him. Jesus was acquainted with grief. That's all before you even get to the cross. And, and, and when you get to the cross, you realize he's acquainted not only with his grief. Look what this passage says. He's acquainted with our grief. In fact, the third point you'll see in the next few verses out of this, he came as a substitute taking the place of sinners. He came not only to take on his life, to experience his life, but he takes on all of ours as well. He takes on all the parts of it. Read with me, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief. Surely he carried our griefs too. He's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. 
Even though he's there carrying our sorrows, we thought it was his fault, which is what everybody thought when he was on the cross. Even the thief next to him said, this is your fault. You're one of us. Verse five is an amazing verse. Look what it says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, that word literally is stripes, we are healed. So it's describing what he's going to go through. Can I remind you, this was written 700 years before Christ lived. This was written before there was any Roman crucifixions. In fact, it was written before there's any Roman empires. And and Isaiah says, oh, he's going to be pierced, which he was in his hands and his feet and his side. His body's going to be crushed. And if you know anything about a Roman crucifixion, it's like every socket is pulled out. Every part of the body, both internally and externally, it destroys the body. By his stripes, because he was scourged before he was ever put on the cross. We are healed. All of these things took place. All of these prophecies that were written. And why did it happen? Verse 6, because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. The only reason he came, the only reason he goes through this, the only reason he experienced that, the only reason he put himself in that place is because of us. Because all of us are like sheep. And that culture in particular, they knew. You know why sheep always have to have a shepherd? You know why sheep always have to have a guard dog? Sheep always have to have an enclosure? Sheep always go astray. They always do. And they always get in trouble. They're not smart animals. They're stubborn animals. They're wily animals. In fact, probably the way that sheep are enclosed the most today in modern culture is they've got a hoof guard. In any enclosure, any field they want to keep them in, they come and it leads to a road. And there, there's a hoof guard. It's these eight, it's these metal grids that they can't put their hooves between. And so it keeps the sheep inside. Uh, Except for one group of sheep in Yorkshire, England. There was a group of sheep huge pasture of them. They all got out. They couldn't figure out why. There was one black sheep of the group who led them all. No, literally came and he figured out you can't walk across the hoof guard, but you can roll across it. So when he came to the boundary, he laid down and rolled across the hoof guard and off they went. And the rest of the sheep did exactly the same thing. Then you go, oh man, that's brilliant. Yeah, it was so brilliant. A lot of them got hit by cars. Some of them went off a cliff. Some were in neighbor's garden. Some were shot. See, they came to the boundary that was there to protect them. And they're just determined. I want to be free. And this is what Isaiah says about us. We're just like that. God has placed all of all these boundaries for our life, for our protection. And all of us, and I don't care who you are, all of us have gone astray. All of us have those places where you go, you know, I'm going to do it my way. I'm, I, I, don't, I know that's probably the right way. I'm going to do it this way. And, and we put ourselves in this place. He says that 
all of us have gone astray. We're sinners before him. But then notice what the line says. And God placed on him the sin of all of us. Isn't that a powerful statement? I mean, I love the universality of no one gets out of this. We've all gone astray. But I also love the universal gift that's given to every single one of us. He placed it on him. And and, and look how he responded in the middle of it. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shear is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. He he was placed in this trial, this injustice of a trial, because he was innocent in it. And notice what it says. When he's in that position, he's not going to open his mouth. He's not going to defend himself. And and if you look at it, all through Jesus' life, anytime that he's kind of put on trial, anytime they try to corner him, Jesus always had the perfect answer, guys. And when he came to his trial, I mean, in a moment's notice, he could have shut the whole thing down just with his logic, with his understanding of Scripture, with just truth. But he chose to be silent because his goal wasn't to stop the injustice of that trial. His goal was to stop the injustice of what had happened to humanity. His goal was to pay what no one else could pay. And so when it came to him, he was quiet. He was silent. And they put him on a cross, and notice what it says in verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked. Everybody that was crucified on the cross, they had a, 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 a criminal's grave there. They literally, they'd put, them, put the bodies, throw the bodies into the pit there together. That was what he was assigned, uh, except in his case, and with a rich man in his death. Now, we know what happened. A rich man came forward, and he said, I don't want that to happen to Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea. He claimed the body. He put it in his tomb. Again, can I remind you this was written 700 years before? You start looking at the details of this thing as you go through? It's a pretty amazing prophecy. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. See, he, he did all of this for us. As a substitute for us. And then the final part of the passage, and this is maybe the most amazing part to me, is he came to satisfy. He came to satisfy, to completely fulfill. And here's what you need to know. It was God's plan all along. Jesus wasn't this victim that was caught up in human history. Jesus wasn't this good guy that you go, oh man, how did that happen to him? God had planned this all along. Look what Isaiah says in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord, that's Yahweh, God, to crush him and to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What what he did there satisfies the justice of God. What he did there satisfied what God said had to happen for humanity to be forgiven. In the anguish of his soul of that. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Because of what he did, many are going to be right with God. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And look at this. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. See, see, this whole thing that Jesus did, he came small, one of us, insignificant even in his life and his birth up until that point. And, and then he revealed God to us. As a man of sorrows, he carried our grief. As our substitute, he went to the cross. And in his death there, do you hear how Isaiah is describing this? Man, as all of that was poured out on him, as all of that he experienced on that, he satisfied what God needed. He satisfied everything for forgiveness. And because of that, many are made righteous. This isn't this hidden little plan. It wasn't for a few. It's for the many. Many have their sins taken by him. Guys, when we come into Christmas, and I love celebrating the Christmas story. I love the baby in a manger. But if you... Don't realize he came to the manger to be on a cross. He came to our world because this was his mission all along. This was the trajectory. This is why he came. This is the gift of Christmas and Easter. All of it wrapped in one. It's the gift of what Jesus Christ gives. And, and, and to realize someone loves you that much, it's hard to fathom. You know, Robert Coleman Years ago in his book, Written in Blood, it's a great, great little book. He tells of a story of two siblings, a brother and sister, Johnny and Mary. And Mary was wasting away of a blood disease. And uh, Johnny had had the same disease two years before. And as they studied it, they realized the antibodies in his blood would be enough to fight hers. And so the doctor went to Johnny and he said, hey, I, I want to describe this procedure and your sister needs this. There's no other matches. You've experienced, you have the same blood type and you have the antibodies in your blood. Would you be willing to give blood to your sister? And he stared up at him and his lip kind of quivered. And finally he looked up and he said, yeah, I'll do it. They wheeled him into the operating room. And as he saw his sister, you could just see he was the picture of health and she was frail. And he just smiled at his sister Mary. And then they came and they brought the needle over. And when they put it in his arm, he stopped smiling. His face kind of fell and he just sat there quietly. After several minutes, Johnny looked at the doctor and he said, So doctor, when do I die? And the doctor realized Johnny's hesitation then. He thought he had to give all this blood to his sister. This little boy loved her enough that he made that decision. It's a pretty powerful example of love. But I can almost understand it between siblings who love each other that much. But to think the God of the universe looks at you and me. 
And guys, it wasn't a split decision he made. It wasn't an uninformed decision. He knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. He loved us so much. He didn't just come to a manger. He lived a hard life. He died the worst death. And more than the physical death, as he's there, all of God's justice, everything that everyone ever deserved for sin is poured out on him. That's the greatest gift. That's the greatest love. And the greatest celebration, and we sing it every year with joy to the world. If you listen and read the lyrics of that song, it's not joy to the world that Jesus came the first time. It's joy to the world that he's coming again, that he will claim his own. So what's our response? Let me just walk you through, I think, four, four ways that we respond to just this gift, respond to who he is. The first one I would say is just Gratitude. Man, I I hope you're like me as you hear it again, as you think about it again, you think about what Jesus did. We just humbly thank him for what he's done. We just thank him this Christmas. When you're Christmas morning celebrating, when you're opening presents, when you're with family, when you're with friends, when we're here gathering, we're lighting candles, and we go through all the tradition, that it's not just tradition for us, that we just stop in that moment, moment and go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me like that. No one has loved me like that. You know, as Guinness talks about years ago when the Soviet Union was trying to wipe out Christianity, one Sunday morning they raided a bunch of churches. And a KGB officer went into this one church and he looked up and and there was this older woman. She was hugging this life-size statue of Jesus on the cross and literally kissing his feet. And he called out to her and he said, Babushka, grandmother, He said, I hope you'd be willing to kiss the feet of the general secretary of the Communist Party. And she smiled at him. She said, I certainly will. But he has to be crucified first. (laughs) Guys, no one has done for us what Jesus has done. No one deserves our thanks and our affection more. So I, I pray that one response out of this crowd would be so many of us, we would just tell them thank you. We'd just express our gratitude. You know, a, a second response I, I hope as well is comfort. Is comfort. Some of you that you would draw near to him knowing he, he carries your pain too. I, I love that line in it. it. It's not only his grief he was acquainted with, he bears our grief. And again, this is a choice of love by God. He's God of the universe. He didn't have to design it that way. Our pain could have been our pain. But for him to love us enough that he goes, no, I'll carry it with you. And for some of you, you're in a season, and Christmas, I think, sometimes makes it even harder. With all the celebration going on, and feel the pain of it. We've got a friend who's in town visiting right now. His wife died from cancer three months ago. And pretty quickly, the grief and the pain comes back up. I was thinking about 
you know, we're coming up on a year. It was right the day after Christmas that our family pastor, Craig Jutilla, passed away. His family's walking through the Christmas season right now. There's a number of you that every marker, every holiday, there's a pain that comes up with it. And you carry it. And that grief gets fresh again. But I just encourage you, the evil one wants to use your pain to convince you to pull back from God. Notice what he's doing in that. He's wanting you to pull back from the only one who actually carries it with you. He's wanting you to pull back from the only one who knows exactly what you feel. I would encourage you, draw near to him. It won't magically make it all go away. It just won't. So I'm not promising that. But there's something about knowing I have a Savior who carries it with me. Who's willing to feel it with me. And comfort me. I pray for many of you this comforts you as you read through this passage and you think about his gift. There's some of you here, I hope it actually, I'll be honest, does the opposite effect. I hope it discomforts you. I hope it rattles you a little bit. I hope you'll get honest enough with it and wrestle with the reality of this prophecy in history. And here's why I say that. There's some of you that even as we celebrate these stories, as we talk about Jesus and all that, there's a part of you that goes, That is great for you guys. I'm so happy for you, but I can't go there. I'm too rational. Uh, It's sweet. It's a sweet story. Sweet that churches do that. But rationally, I can't believe in that. I can't believe in virgin births. I can't believe that, okay, he died and rose again. That's all your stories, but that's not reality. And, And if you're there, I understand that. But here's all I would ask you. Rationally, would you deal with this? How do you rationally explain this passage. How do you rationally explain the specific detail that it points out about Jesus? What do you do with that rationally? Remember one time I was with a young man in New York and he was Jewish, wasn't really practicing. And and so because he was Jewish, he knew some of his, his scripture, what we call the Old Testament. I said, well, let's just look at your scriptures. And so we looked at Psalm 22 as it describes it. And then we spent a lot of time, we're just reading through Isaiah 53. And I said, man, what do you do with this? How is this not Jesus and the Messiah? And he said, well, you know, one interpretation is it's the nation of Israel. And I looked at him and said, seriously, seriously, how was the nation pierced? When did the nation get stripes? When, When did a rich man come and claim the body of the nation? When, I mean, we just went through the details of it. And, and finally, he was kind of sheepish. And he goes, yeah, I know that doesn't hold up. And he goes, I'll be honest with you. It's hard for me to not see Jesus in this passage. And I was like, man. And, and, and I'll never forget, he said this. He goes, but if I were to admit Jesus is the Messiah, I'd have to totally change my life. And I don't know if I'm ready to do that yet. And as we talked, I said, you know, I will give you this. I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate that you're honest enough to admit what is really holding you up 
instead of this intellectual honesty about it. Because intellectually, when you really wrestle with this, this one's a hard one to dodge. And I, I would just challenge some of you, if you've never wrestled with this, if you've never sat down, you should have at least some answer of what's going on there. You owe it to yourself intellectually. And, and you might find as I believe, you know, the easiest answer actually, by the way, is it actually happened in human history because God loves us that much. Final response, I hope for some, it's actually a place of decision that you actually would accept and embrace God's plan of forgiveness for you. You know, as I was studying this passage this week, I noticed something I'd never seen before, a gap. And if you look in verse 6, it's interesting. Verse 6 is universal. It says, all of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. God laid on him the sin of all of us. It talks about this universal gift that was given. But you know where the gap shows up? If you look at the last verse, verse 12, all, the sin of all was placed on him. But many are actually forgiven. Doesn't say all are forgiven. Doesn't say all are made righteous. Says the sin of all was paid for. But only many. Now I'm so thankful it's many. But you go, why the gap? Why would he pay for all, but all don't experience it? Because here's the reality. While God has a plan, while God sent his son, while God is willing to pay for our sins, while God is willing to bear in himself all that should have been on us, God will not force that decision on anyone. And you know where the gap shows up? There are people that maybe they heard about the plan, maybe they see it, maybe they see what Christ has done, but they've never made it their decision. And if that's the case, they're not part of the many. They're part of that gap. And the reality is, that's some of you here. If you're dead honest, you've heard about it, you recognize it, but you've never received it. And you need to hear me. If that is you, if you're hearing that, let me tell you, you're in the right place. And here's why I say that. Because everybody else in the room, we were right where you are. <laughs> and God loved us enough. And, and at some point in our life, and some of us it was old, some of it was young, some of us it was a long journey. Some of us still have some bumps along the way. But we're part of a many who've received that gift personally. And if you've never done that, despite the fact God offers it, you won't experience it. And so as we close out, you know, you can't talk about a great mission and a great gift like this without giving you opportunity right now. I don't know what would keep you from saying, I want that for myself. And I'm going to give you that opportunity. In fact, I ask everybody to bow your heads just right where you are. And as we close out, if you're here, and if you're honest with yourself right now in your heart, you go, I've not received that. 
I don't know for sure that I really am part of the many. If you want to make that decision today, I'm going to ask you, while everybody's head's bowed, just slip up your hand. Make a declaration before him. Go ahead and make the decision before God. and Just slip your hand up and go, yeah, I want that. I need that today. And if that's the case, then will you pray with me right now? Father, I recognize that this passage is talking about me. I've gone astray. I deserve punishment. But Jesus loves me so much that he has taken my sin. Lord, I want to know that's true about me. I want to make this decision today. I want to go into this Christmas season knowing that you're my Father and Jesus is my Savior. So I'm asking you now to forgive me. I'm asking you now to apply what Jesus did to my life. Lord, I want to be a part of your family and be forgiven by your son. Father, I pray for all of us. I pray for all who who prayed that prayer. Maybe it was the first time. Maybe they've prayed it many times. I pray that you'd give them the courage to believe the truth of it and to embrace it. Lord, I pray for all of us who, who, as we go into this Christmas season, we need so many things. Some of us need to be stirred up in a new way with gratitude. Some of us need to know that your comfort is near. Some of us need to wrestle with the truth of it. And some of us need to step into it and believe it. Lord, we thank you that no matter what we need, we have a Savior who loved us so much that he came. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.